good morning. We have one of the most amazing passages to go through in Scripture this morning that I know that after the message you're going to want to go back and, and read it again to find out what God also has for you that maybe I didn't cover. So we're going to need some Bibles into our laps, so go ahead and take out your Bible if you don't have one. Raise your hand and our team will bring whatever Bibles that we have in the back forward and try to get one to you. Also, take out your handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we're about to begin. Um, while those Bibles are being handed out, we've got to have a real quick family meeting. All right. Uh, some of you know what these are all about, right? So um, if you're brand new, you don't know what a family meeting is, well, you've just walked into uh, a family room. So there's a couple different hats I wear uh, in this church, and one of them is a shepherd. The other one is a dad. And so I got to put on my shepherd hat and we need to talk about something real quick. We need to talk about last week. Um, last week's Easter was probably the most controversial Easter I can ever remember. Um, uh, how do I know that? Well, it's called feedback. Okay. So uh, now the vast majority of you kind of just dealt with it uh, positively or negatively in your own in your own thoughts and maybe amongst your own family. But a good amount of you um, got your information to me or my staff. And overwhelmingly, it was very positive. Um, there was a good amount of uh, negative feedback as far as how to engage with it. And so I wanted to talk about it. If you weren't here last week, let me just catch you up. Um, it was the last weekend of the month, and so we did worship totally different than we normally do it. So there was trusses and stage risers, and uh, there's haze all over the room for the light beams, and there was lighting and everything. It was just completely over the top and kind of a higher volume kind of thing. And well, some of us um, had a difficult time engaging with it, and it was a little bit harder. And so I need to address a couple things real quick. Um, the first one with the old uh, shepherd's hat on there is I need to let you know that I made two leadership crucial mistakes in having that weekend. And the way that I believe about leadership is that uh, you call a foul a foul. If you see something that wasn't uh, done well, just call it. And I will always do that to you and for you. So the two mistakes that I made were, number one, was the decision to do it on Easter. Now, granted, Easter shows up on the last weekend of the month, and that's exactly the same pattern that we're doing all year long. However, the decision to do that style of worship on Easter uh, was not a good choice, even though some of you thought, man, it's the best Easter I ever had. All right, great. Praise the Lord. It was not a good choice for a couple reasons. One of the reasons is I have absolutely no problem stretching our family putting you out of your comfort zone and messing with your head. I have no problem with that family-wise. However, Aunt Edna from Idaho was here, and she didn't exactly need her face melted off. So that was a massive mistake. And the, uh, the follow-up mistake on that piece of it was that Easter comes with dramatic expectations. People come in in one groove, and it was quite a shock to that, which leads to my second major leadership mistake. The second one was I did not prepare you. I did not give you advance notice the weekend before. I did not give you notice 
prior to the service. Some of us needed to prepare our families. Some of us needed to prepare our health. Some of us <laughs> needed to prepare uh, uh, a lot of different things. And I, and I need to tell you that that was not a good leadership choice on my behalf. That falls on me. That was my decision in doing so. On paper, looked awesome. Okay, there's a million reasons why I allowed what I allowed and did what I did. However, that does not make it all a great decision. So um, let's shift a little bit. Let's put on um, now, granted, any time we did that, we were going to get feedback. All right. But Easter just made it a little bit more heated. Okay. Um, now, let me put on my dad hat. Okay. So we'll take off the leadership hat, put on the dad hat. Um, it was going to happen, and we will continue to stretch you in ways that are very uncomfortable for you. Attending Bridgeway is part of that. You need to understand, if you walk into here, my job is to help you and sometimes boot you to grow. Um, that will not always be comfortable. However, what we do not want to do in any way is harm someone, and if you had any reactions to the service, whether it due to volume or due to the haze... I want you to know you matter to us, and that is not at all our intention. We love you, we want to protect you, and we are terribly hurt if you were hurt in any way, shape, or form. Now, that was a very small amount of people, but understand, anyone here is precious to us. Nobody is sidelined as, oh, well, you don't matter. No way. Everybody matters here, all right? So, along with this dad hat, there are two groups of people I need to have a bit of a discussion with, okay? And this is a spiritual spanking, all right? So, number one, um, I will start with an encouragement. Most of the feedback that came in that was, did not really enjoy that was incredibly kind, noticed that there were good hearts, saying, listen, that was not at all this, this was hard for me. It was done very respectful, it was done, and by the way, disagreeing in this church with something going on is completely okay, and I really appreciated the feedback and all the ones that were done in a wonderful spirit. So that was the vast majority. Now there were some of us that in your responses and how you engaged with the weekend became really nasty and became very vicious. It got into personal attacks and it really destroyed my staff and myself. I just need you to understand that's not how we handle things here. That is not appropriate for adults. It's not appropriate for believers. So you know what? No, you're probably not going to receive an email back from me. No, I'm not going to play that game. I understand things are very difficult for you. However, there's a proper way to do it and an improper way to do it. The, let me give you a better line to use um, on this next piece. The next group that I would like to correct is those of you that said that was not worship. You're missing the whole point of the year. It was worship. How do we know that? Because there was people here that said it was the first time they ever felt free to worship it was the way that there were so many people engaging. There were people that said it was my best Easter ever because I engaged with my Lord through the music time. And I was loving the Lord. When you say it's not worship, you're calling them and their experience illegitimate. That is unfair. You cannot do that. 
It's not accurate. It's not fair. So please don't do that. Let me give you a better phrase to use, which is what I hope you mean. That was not a useful or positive worship experience for me. That is very valid. You are allowed to say that. You're allowed to believe that. You're allowed to engage with that. You're even allowed to say, you know what? Wow, I hope we never do it again. I didn't like it. You're allowed to say all those things. Those are all fair. But please do not say that it's not worship because you're not hearing the teaching at all. It was not your style, but some other people did engage with it. Okay? So, finally, closing out, I need to give you a little bit of a perspective on this. Every time we design a service, we are thinking of you in mind. Some people said, well, you put the signs out front to try to cover yourself in liability. No. That was to help try to protect you and prepare you. Our hearts are with you, and we never want to harm you. That is truly the heart of this church. Perspective. You ready to hear this? This is pretty extraordinary. Last weekend, we had more people raise their hand to want to engage with Jesus Christ than, from my memory, any other weekend in the whole history of our church. That is awesome. So that is a little bit of an understanding that whether or not I made poor leadership decisions or whether or not I did everything right or wrong, God can move anyway. And God did move anyway. And he did an extraordinary work. Amen. Amen. All right. Good enough. Yes, we will continue to stretch you, but hopefully I will continue to make better decisions. All right. Let's dive into God's word on your handout sheet. uh, You'll notice that we are in part nine of our life of worship series. And I entitled this A King from Nowhere. And I want to ask a very simple question at the beginning that would uh, hopefully resonate in your spirit. And that is this. Does quiet faithfulness matter? Does quiet faithfulness matter? What do I mean by that? I mean to stick in there, be with the Lord, be consistent, and be a man or woman of integrity when no one is watching. Now, we ask that question in church, and everyone goes, well, yeah, of course faithfulness matters. Faithfulness is kind of a God thing. All right, are you living like that? Uh, The answer to the question of whether or not it matters really depends on your end goal. What are you trying to accomplish? If you're trying to get credit for what you do from mankind, then no, it doesn't matter. You actually want to go ahead and do whatever you want to do in quiet times, and then only publicly do the good stuff so you'll get credit for it if your ultimate goal is let's say to make life easier then no it doesn't make sense but if your life goal is to live to please the lord to be used by god then yes it matters very very much the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this when no one else notices god sees when no one else notices God sees, and yes, it does matter, and it matters in a huge, huge capacity. So before we dive into this story, let's recap. It's been a couple weeks since we engaged with this. Pastor Justin took us through a rather amazing passage where Saul, once again, complete disobedience, doesn't do it right. Samuel tries to rebuke him, and as Samuel turns away, Saul goes to grab his robe, and it tears 
And again, he says, just as my robe has torn, so has your kingdom been torn away from you. And we're about to see the big shift from Saul the king being used by God to a new man coming on the scene for the first time by the name of King David. We don't know him as king yet. He will not be king for a long, long time, but he is about to be selected by God. One man looks good on the outside, but is spiritually bankrupt, but tries really hard. The new guy is relatively unknown. In his mind, he lives in obscurity. And yet he has a heart for God and he makes a completely different sort of king. So this is the big shift where we're at. What's intriguing is that last passage ends with this, these phrases. And Samuel grieved over Saul. Why was Samuel, who is really kind of the right-hand man of the king, the prophet of the nation, used to be the judge of the nation for years? Why is he so upset that Saul didn't work out? Why is he so upset that God's going to remove the kingdom? What does he care? What's in it for him? Is it because it's a personal thing where, man, my boy didn't make it, he didn't do well, I invested in him and invested in him and it didn't work out? Is it that? Is he grieving because of the nation? Now we have a bad leader who's going to be in there for a while and God's not even with him. What is it that makes him so sad? I don't have the answer to that. It doesn't explain it. But what's even more intriguing is the follow-up line. And God grieved over making Saul king. God knew what was going to happen. God selected Saul. He selected the one that the nation would have selected had they known to make a point. But he knew what he was doing and now he's sad about his own decision. How does that work? Is that because it was indicative of where the nation was? Does that mean that Saul was a little example of where the hearts of the people were? For whatever reason, everybody seems bummed out about how things are going in this nation. But there comes a point where God says, enough grieving. I'm still doing stuff. I'm still moving forward. I still have plans. Get up. Let's go. And that's where we pick up our story. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. I'm just going to read the first verse. And then we will pray and get into the word of God this morning. The Lord said to Samuel... How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under your teaching today. Lord, not the teaching of a man, but Lord, the teaching of your word. We submit ourselves for you to examine us, to search us, and to know us. And to know, Lord, whether or not we have the spirit of Saul or the spirit of David. I pray that today's message might soak into our hearts. That, Lord, that we would be different people because we came, because you love us, because of what you've purchased for us. Holy Spirit, come upon us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Now fill your horn with oil. That's how they would anoint kings, basically even a ram's horn. But they would have later on, it's like a flask and they would pour oil over the head, kind of like God is all over you attitude. You've been anointed specially. 
I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, right here, all the Jewish readers would have, their eyes and ears would have perked up and said, oh, we have the, we have the appropriate shift happening. Why? Well, there's a couple things that are significant about it. Uh, number one is that Old Testament prophecy always said that this great king was going to come out of what tribe? The tribe of Judah. The problem with Saul is that Saul is not from Judah. Saul is from Benjamin. They knew that. And all the ones tracking with Old Testament prophecy said something's not right here. He's not from the right tribe. The minute Bethlehem is mentioned, we know Bethlehem is in Judah. All the Jewish readers would go, now we're doing it. Now we're on the right track. Now we're heading somewhere. But what's intriguing is God mentions Jesse by name. I find that interesting for two reasons. Number one, Jesse has a really amazing grandma. Now, I don't know if you know who Jesse's grandma is, but I'm sure you're familiar with her. It was Ruth of the Bible, right? The whole book named after her. And his grandpa was Boaz. Now, there are not many good dads or not many good husbands recorded in the Bible, but Boaz is amazing. So he has a very, very good family line. He comes down. Now, remember, that's an amazing story in of itself because Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She came in and was grafted into the family. Kind of a big deal. But it's intriguing as well that God mentions Jesse by name. How neat would that be? Right? It's that God goes, you know what? I want to tell you about Jesse of Bethlehem. And you kind of go, hey, God knew my name. I love that. Now, even though we know he knows everybody's name, it's pretty neat when he calls you out and says, I'm going to send you to this guy. All right. Let's move on in the story. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, wait a second, how can I go and do that? Saul's going to hear about it. He's going to kill me. All right. Why would Saul kill the guy that trained him? Why would Saul kill the prophet of God? Why would Samuel have to worry about that if Samuel was just grieving over him as if it was personal? Because to anoint another king while a king is still on the throne is treason. And those are grounds for death. To make it more difficult, God just asked him to go from where he was down to Bethlehem. The only way to get there is to go through Saul's hometown. Well, that's pretty rough. So we got to immediately go, you know what? Sometimes the calls of God, sometimes the life of worship is very uncomfortable. He just asked him to put his life on the line. Now, if God's going to give him a plan. Let's see how the plan looks. He said, the Lord said, take a heifer with you, a cow with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Look at his life of worship. Regardless of cost to him, he said yes. He lived a life of obedience and put his life on the line. To walk right through the king's hometown, knows that he's going to get stopped. How nervous was he? Yeah? That you walk through, and even though God gave him this plan, and what was God's plan? Well, tell him that you're here to sacrifice. He's probably thinking, but what if God, your plan doesn't work? I'm putting my life on the line here. I'm going to go through and watch. He's going to come up and go, hey, Samuel, that's weird. I haven't seen you in a while. What are you doing here? I'm here to sacrifice. Really? Is that it? Well, kind of. Come on, you know. And what if it all goes poorly? What if he nails me to the wall and starts asking me more questions and I don't know what to say? But he does it anyway. His obedience factor is so strong 
that even if it means his own death, he's ready to go. The other thing you'll notice is that it's God's turn to pick his boy. It's God's turn to pick his man for the job. It says back in chapter 13, Saul said, uh, Samuel said to Saul, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul has already been notified more than once he's on his way out. You're going to watch paranoia take over. You're going to watch all kinds of nervousness. You're going to see some weird thoughts. You're going to see some bad reactions. This clinging and trying to hang on to the king's role. Anybody remember what happened when Herod was notified that there was a new king being born? Anybody remember that story? What did he do? Slaughtered all the Hebrew boys just to take out the competition. You don't just replace a king very easily. But God said, I need a man. And I will have a man after my own heart. So he's about to make the shift anyway. Last thing before we move on. Did God just encourage him to lie? I mean, you got to ask that question, right? Because what is he going down there to do? He's down there to anoint a new king. But when asked, what's he supposed to say? I'm here to sacrifice. Now, isn't that misleading? Isn't that misdirecting? Did God just encourage lying? Because God even goes, hey, buddy, I'll cover you. Try this line out. (laughs) Right? That'll get you through. Now, I need to tell you this. God is sly, but God is good. And you need to understand how those work out. Here's the simplest explanation of what just occurred. God pulled a parental move. Here's a parental move. Here's what it means. Let me ask you this. If you're ready to take your child to the doctor and he says, hey... Where are we going? How do you handle that? How much information do you download? Because he's not going to understand. He's not going to get the bigger picture. And he's certainly not going to be cool with the plan, right? So you start out by going, we're going to go to the doctor. So you start out with some clear language. And then the little guy's, well, what's going to happen there? Well, I don't know. They're probably going to jam a big needle in your arm and it's really going to hurt. I don't think any parent really does that one. No, you soft sell it and you redirect the conversation, right? Well, you know what? It's going to be a real short visit and afterwards we're going to get ice cream, (laughs) right? God pulled a parental move. Uh, He's going to go down and he's going to say, hey, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm here to sacrifice, you know, and it's kind of this law, you know, nothing coming after it. And I know any king, but you don't need to know that, Right. Because is he going to sacrifice? Yes, he is. That's only part of the story. But that's the part of the story that Saul would need to know. The other stuff he doesn't need to know right now because he wouldn't understand the plan and he would completely try to hijack it. That is not acceptable. So God pulled a parent move. Let's move on. Second part of verse 4. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him and they said, Do you come in peace? And Samuel said, Yes, in peace. Now, why is everybody nervous that Samuel rolled into town? Well, it's like the vice president just came in. Why is he here? Something's wrong. Before he was prophet, he was judge, and he would execute judgment on behalf of the nation. So they're going, why are you here? What's going on? Something bad is happening, right? They're nervous about it. He said, no, 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 hold on. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. Relax. Now, what's intriguing about talking about this place of Bethlehem is that I was just there, right? 
just got back from Israel. I was in Bethlehem. We got a chance to walk around, see the church where they think Jesus was born and blah, 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 blah. Right? We went through all that. But what's intriguing is that that area of the world is still in unusual conflict. This is the place where Jesus was born. There was conflict. Right here, there's going to be a switchover of power and shift, and it's known as the city of David because that's where David was born. And But do you understand that it's still that way? So sure enough, we're traveling through this uh, nation of Israel, and we have Israeli tour guides, right? We had two of them, two buses. One, one bus was Nola, then the other bus was Reuven. They're guiding us around, and all of a sudden they said, well, today we're going to go to Bethlehem, so we can't go with you. We pull off on a rest stop, drop them both off. We go in by ourselves. Why? Because they're not allowed to go into a Palestinian-controlled region. Bethlehem is Palestinian-controlled. So is Jericho and some other areas. Israelis, with their passports, are not allowed to go in there. And what was intriguing is that the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's not very nice of the Palestinians. They're keeping out the Israelis from some locations, and that doesn't sound very nice. Well... I was completely wrong. It was not the Palestinians that said you can't come in. It was the Israeli government that said you cannot go in. Why? Because they say we're not getting you out. If anything goes down wrong there, we will start World War III trying to extract you. We're not going to do that. So no, you're not going into that area. If you do, you're rebelling against us. We're not pulling you out. That's your own business. But don't go in there. All right. The Palestinians wanted tourists to come in. They want the people to come in because that's tourism money. So they're completely cool with anybody going in there. So there's all this odd conflict. You're looking at walls and barbed wire and it kind of looks like a ghetto and you're kind of figuring out how does this all work. And it's kind of weird. Over and over, this area of the world has just had so much conflict and so much craziness. And it's still going on today. So sure enough, he goes into Bethlehem. They're all nervous about it. And look at his reply. He said, yeah, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. All right. A couple interesting things about that. It says he goes to the elders of the town, and the next thing you know, he's talking to Jesse and his sons. Is Jesse an elder in the town? We don't know. That seems kind of weird. Why is he and his sons in conversation with the elders of the city? Maybe it's two conversations. Maybe he talked to the elders, and then he moved on and invited Jesse and his sons. I don't know, but it's very possible that Jesse was a wealthy, prominent man. He ends up having eight sons. We don't know how many daughters there were, but there's eight boys. One of them is David. But he says to them, we're about to go to a party with God. We're going to go to a holy meal. Talk about God stuff. Talk about important stuff. So what I want you to do is consecrate yourselves. And what's that mean? Consecrate means clean up, get ready, prepare yourself, make yourself set aside Make yourself holy for the meal. It's kind of an interesting concept, very foreign to us. Let me give you a little bit more perspective. So while we're over there in Israel, one of us hears Nola, our guide, say something about preparing for Passover, which was coming rapidly. 
And they said, she mentioned something about preparation. They said, Nola, what do you mean by preparation? How do you prepare for Passover? She said, oh, it takes weeks. She said, you have to go through your whole house and do a deep cleaning on everything. You have to take everything out, move it all out, scrub, clean, get it all ready. Take anything that has yeast in it and go put it into a locked cabinet. You actually have to have a physical lock and hide it away. Some people bring out a whole new set of dishes, a whole new set of silverware, everything for the Passover time. You have to kind of move this out and move this out and take this out and do this cleaning. And do. She said it's weeks and weeks of preparation. It's a big deal. Every year they have to do this. So then another time I kind of ran into this was one of the times while I was sick and Joel was sick and everybody else was out, we had to go get some money wired from America. So we had to go to a Western Union. Well, we were back at the hotel and we weren't feeling so hot. So we we're like, where's the closest one? We got to walk there. So we're like two old men going, oh, and we're walking and we're walking and we're following my phone to try to find Western Union. Now, it was Friday around noon, 1231-ish that we are out walking. Now, we had to hurry up and get it before Sabbath. Sabbath starts at sundown. Sundown hits about 7 o'clock at night. So we're there at 1, which is... I don't know about your clock, but that seems six hours before seven o'clock to me. So we're out there walking around and we finally find the Western Union and it's closed. And we were just like, oh, because it was so exhausting just to get there. So we sit down. Right. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I go, well, we got to find a location, but we need sustenance first because we hadn't had any lunch. Right. There's no lunch back at the hotel. We're like, okay, what do we got to do? Well, we got to walk over there across the street. So we're like, oh, right. So we all go across the street and we walk in. There's a restaurant, thankfully, right in front of us. So we walk in and the guy goes, closed. Shabbat. All right. Shabbat is Sabbath. It closed for Sabbath. I'm like, it is one o'clock in the afternoon. You have six hours, buddy, until Sabbath. Really? All right. So we move on down into this little mall area and run into a little area that looks like hot dog on a stick. You ever seen one of those? All right, in the mall. So it's this little area. I'm thinking, well, they're clearly not super Shabbat, right? So we're like, and it wasn't hot dog on a stick. It was like bagel on a stick, which is totally different. So we walk in and we're going to get bagels there because that's what they said that they had, at least on the menu. So Joel walks up and he goes, well, we can get bagels. And the lady goes, nope, Sabbath. I was like, oh, you're killing me. Well, in the front case were those big pretzels that go around for like six months. You know, those kind. And I'm like, can I, can I get a pretzel? She's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I will have one of those and I will have some water, please. Right? So she sells this to us. And Joel and I literally for lunch shared a pretzel. We're like, here's your piece. Here's your piece. It was so sad. Okay. So... Sabbath, kind of a big deal. Hey, how do we prepare for it? Oh, I don't know. Let's shut down early in the morning. Okay, so here's what's intriguing. Here in a nation that, although religious on the exterior, largely many of them live very secular lives, yet they were preparing for a God day way in advance and with extreme passion. We don't know anything about it. We're looking at them and going, I don't get it. Because we have one phrase, post-cross, post-Pentecost, and that one phrase that echoes in our head is what? Come as you are. 
Jesus died for it. You don't need to clean up in order to come to God. You can come to God with warts and all. You're all messed up and you, you have your lives is in chaos and Jesus welcomes you with open arms. We don't know anything about preparing to meet with God. My big question, though, is just because we don't have to, does that mean that we shouldn't? Is there nothing about meeting with God? Is there nothing about preparing? Is there nothing about cleaning up and saying, I'm going to go to an important meal with my Lord? And I'm not talking about necessarily your exterior. I'm talking about preparing your heart to come to church, preparing your heart to have a prayer meeting, preparing your heart to do a teaching it's intriguing because uh, I kind of live in kind of a weird little hypocritical state that if there's any sin in my life that's going on or something that maybe I'm ingesting that's maybe not as healthy for me or whatever, I completely cut that stuff out of my life in an extreme way for Saturday and Sunday because I'm trying to prepare to go in to teach. And you go, we should do that all the time. I get it. But you know what I mean? It's this idea that I was going, wait a second, I'm about to walk in and do the work of God. So whatever is maybe not blessing to my soul, I have to get it away from me to prepare to go meet with God. I don't know how much we need to be doing that a little bit more. Let's move on. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab is his firstborn, and his name means my God is father. And Samuel thought to himself, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, what does that mean? Here's what it at least means. It means packaging means little to God. Packaging, what you look like, what you do for a living, your status, these types of things, your personality, your gifting, those are, they matter to God only because he will utilize them, but they are never means of selection. God does not choose to use you for a purpose because you are qualified to do so. He chooses you for a purpose because he wants to choose you for a purpose and empower you to do it. As a matter of fact, the M.O. that God normally uses that was laid out by Jesus is that God will likely select someone that is more incapable because then people look right through them and see God. But if he picks someone who is high in the world's eyes, they can't see over them to see Jesus at all. So he chooses most likely people that are not as opposed to people that are. Because it gives more glory to God. But make no mistake, he will use your packaging and he knows what he's doing. You're going to realize right after this, he goes, don't look at the outside. Then they mention David later on in the passage and they mention he's good looking three times. Okay, why do you have to keep saying that? What is your point? The, the point was saying, listen, he's going to lead a nation and how he appears to people does matter and how God utilizes that. So, yes, sometimes God will use you in the place that he has placed you in the world. But that's not why he chose you. He didn't choose you because you're great. He chose you to make you great. That's different. We always have to remember we don't have to be great for God to use us. That's not appropriate. As a matter of fact, it will probably ruin it. Let's go ahead and move to the next piece. Then Jesse called Abinadab. That's his second son. 
which means my father is noble and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema, which means Yahweh hears, pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. All right, so let's, let's talk about this for a moment. There's three intriguing things about that statement, and you'll have to follow my odd sense of humor in order to appreciate this. The first one is simply this. How mean is it to leave the little guy behind? Okay, understand, this is like Cinderella. They just got invited to the ball. Right? It's this whole idea that, hey, the vice president just came into town. We had this great meal, this meeting, which David wasn't involved in. And when we all line up to see who's going to be the next king or whatever, we're going to have some fancy thing go on with the vice president. You're not invited. So poor David was there like, I'll get my shoes. They're like, no, don't worry about it. You're going to watch the sheep, right? And he's like, oh, I hope you guys have a great time, right? I mean, it's just this... And this poor guy's all by himself at home, and he's looking at the sheep. He's like, you guys know what I mean, right? You know, and the, the sheep are like, yes, we do, you know. It's just sad. You don't just leave one behind. Well, I got to select my best boys, right? And then you leave the little guy. That's completely uncool, right? So obviously we have a little bit of an upset possibility, uh, upset concept, and we have this whole Middle Eastern mindset, the oldest one is most important, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, how about the second really unusual thing? How about this? A lot of us wonder what God thinks of us, right? What if God had a parade of rejection, right? Have you all noticed how this just went down? All right, boys, let's line up. So he's really going to tell us what God thinks of you, so let's have the first one. First one, come on down. Hey, God said, no, you're not it. (laughs) Dang it. Right? Okay, go stand over there. You know, it's very much like American Idol. Go sit on that side, right? You're in the bottom three, right? And you're like, oh. Then he brings up the next one. No, you're not it either. Oh, man. And it goes through, and it's just rejection after rejection after rejection, right? So now everybody's ticked off. And after you get rejected, where do you look? Is it that guy, right? Y'all look for who's coming next. Kind of like God rejected me. Who did he accept? Well, sure enough, they get to the end of seven boys and nobody is accepted. So we ask the question, hey, is this all you got? He's like, well, no, I got the little guy. He's back home, right? And he goes, we will not sit down until he arrives. How ticked off are those boys? (laughs) Let's go get him. Come on. Oh, look at him. He's walking, right? Okay, so then David comes up. Hi, guys. How are you? This is totally cool because I was like out talking to the sheep. I was like, oh, I can't never get invited to anything. And then all of a sudden, somebody runs up. They're like, David, everybody's looking. at me. And they're just sitting there looking at him. And they looked at each other and they go, if he gets picked, I will kill myself. Right? Sure enough. Yep, that's the one. Do we see a setup? Is this not sound like Joseph? We all know that story, yeah? Hey, here's a coat of many colors. What do your brothers think of you? It's an absolute setup where everybody hates David now. Is that okay? We'll talk about that. Is it all right for God to do that to you? To cause trouble to come into your life? 
You can't avoid it. Now, a lot of trouble in our lives is bad decisions, right? A lot of us is our own self-created drama. But sometimes God puts trouble in your life for his purposes. A life of worship needs to be all right with that. He did it with Joseph. Why? Joseph's brothers hate him. They want to kill him. They end up sending him into slavery for what purpose? So that he's moved to Egypt and it provides for the Jewish people later on. You okay being used like that? Everybody always wants this big call of God. You sure? Because I'll tell you, David's call from God makes his life absolutely miserable for decades. Well, this whole thing, I mean, does God really allow trouble to come into his people just so he'll be glorified? The answer to that is absolutely yes. In weird ways. Do you remember Paul and Barnabas, two mature missionaries of God? Get in a fight over John Mark. They can't get along. They split up. They literally divide their whole ministry over an argument. You go, well, that's not very mature and blah, blah. That's not very Christian. Doesn't matter. They split up. Was that good? Now God has a missionary over there and a missionary over there. How did God separate and get out the Jerusalem church when he told him to go out to the uttermost parts of the earth? How did he get him to do that? Persecution, penalty of death, attack. Scattered them everywhere. Tower of Babel, same thing. No matter how you look at it, God sometimes will create trouble you can't get out of for his purposes. This life of worship thing is a little bit different than some of us assume. Are we all right with that? Let's pick it up. So he sent and had David brought in. Now look at this. says it three times. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. That's a good-looking kid, right? That just makes the other guys more irritated. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Oops. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. All right. What do we need to know from this? First of all, the obvious. He took a shepherd and made him a shepherd. Yeah? I mean, that's the the very clear tie-in. Why? Is that the first time he's done it? No, he did it to Moses, right? Took Moses out of the palace, stuck him out with the sheep for 40 years till Moses didn't want to be a leader anymore. And then he made him a leader. Why? Because he was training him that whole time. He was sitting with sheep. He was learning to move things that are resistant. He was preparing. He was creating compassion. He was creating patience. He was doing all this work to make him a great leader. But I bet you anything, Moses didn't see it that way. I can guarantee you David didn't see it that way. So let me ask you, do you see it that way? Why does God have you where he has you in the job that you have? You think that's a waste. You think you're wasting your time. You think that I'm not doing the ministry, blah, 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 blah. You're wrong. God is training you. God is guiding you. God is preparing you. Not for the big break. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for every day being obedient to him and being used for his kingdom, he is absolutely utilizing every moment, every situation that you are going through right now. Do not wait for God to get you where he wants you. God has you where he wants you. That's a big difference. Number two, it's intriguing that it says, and the Holy Spirit came upon David in power. So prior, he did not have the Holy Spirit in power. And you're about to read a passage that says, and the Holy Spirit left Saul. What's going on with the Holy Spirit? This is another thing that we don't understand. I've talked about it a lot, so I'm not going to belabor it. But in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit operates very different. 
The Holy Spirit comes upon for a task, a purpose, a calling for power. And then when it's over, he moves on. That is not at all what we're used to talking about today. Why? Because we're post-Pentecost. Pentecost was such a huge deal because never before in the whole history of mankind was the phrase used and the Holy Spirit indwelt someone. Indwelling means I'm setting up my home and I'm not going anywhere. That never happened before. It was impossible. The Holy Spirit would have come upon Samson when he needed to push the pillars down. Samson when he needed to fight. Saul when he needed to become king and prophesy. And then he would move. That's why David in the Psalms said, Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. That meant a rejection of the title. And the Holy Spirit would move on. Nowadays, we take it for granted that the Holy Spirit is with us because he is indwelling every believer. If he's not, then we're not saved. That is evidence of the blessing of our God. Next thing, did you see? And you're going to find out real quickly. David goes back home. His brothers hate him. He's not playing king. He doesn't get to play king for a really, really long time. He just got anointed, and he's probably thinking, that was the weirdest day of my life. And now he's back in the field with the sheep, and he'll be there for a long time. And so it's this idea of it's exciting, and he just called me, and then then nothing. He's in a holding pattern. You ever felt like that? God knows what he's doing. You'll find out in Samuel that he's anointed twice after this. He's anointed in the north and anointed in the south. Those are the public anointings to go public with David and have everybody recognize him. But this was the private God one. This was the you're my man. Let's pick it up. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. What? Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. That was excellent. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Well, that's a good answer to it. Right. I see you have a demon. Anybody know how to play the harp? You're like, what? What what does that have to do with? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Now, look at their reasoning. Well, he's going to play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and they're clear it's from God, and you'll feel better. All right. So Saul says to attendants, good plan. Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of his servants answered, wait, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord's with him. Wait, what? Okay, all this is weird. What is this whole God sending an evil spirit thing? We don't talk like that. We only talk in phrases like God allows evil to happen, right? We say that. I am afraid that we are cleaning up God's image. I'm afraid that we are too worried about being PR guys and try to make God nice. God is not nice. We've covered that. God is good. Does God do things that will blow your mind and horrify you? The answer to that is, of course he will. We just had in the story, God says to Saul, I want you to kill all men, women, and children. You okay with that? Because I'm not. Do you remember it was God that started the dialogue with Satan about Job? Not Satan. God started that conversation. How does God send evil spirits? Well, the simple way is the fact that God is sovereign. Nobody does anything without his say-so. Did he actually send one? You better believe it. Can he call them up from the ranks? Do they still obey him? Absolutely. That's why when Jesus casts one out, they go out. 
demons are still subject to the will of God. So he sends one and he goes, all right, I know you want to attack him. Go for it. Take him out. Sends one down. Why? I believe that there are many reasons, but three right off the top of my head as I was writing this message are number one to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit was gone. And when the Holy Spirit is gone, sometimes really, really bad things happen. Number two, to drive Saul to desperation, either to drive him mad or to drive him to repentance. I don't know which. Number three, to give David a chance to minister to him. How do you get a shepherd out of the field and into the palace? Just like this. It's how the whole plan works out, right? But why did they immediately go, hey, grab a harp? Why did they even think that? Because they knew something about the power of music. Um, I'm going to ask in every service, is Pauline McRae here? I don't know if she's, if she's here with us today. All right, I'm going to talk about her. Okay, good. Pauline McRae is uh, one of the gals who helps me with research on my sermons by grabbing materials and sending them over, and she plays the harp. She is contracted out to play for people who are dying. Why? Because music theory and people realize there are certain tones that are easily played more on a harp that create peacefulness and they soothe bodies. There are certain tones that are normal to the human nature that cause us to relax, and there are certain ones that cause dissonance. In addition to that, we have our individual things that this is soothing for me, not soothing for you. We have all these weird reactions to music. Music is very, very powerful. But what's so odd is they knew it back then, and we're still doing it today, still with a harp. But uh, it just seems, I don't know how they made that connection, but they knew. But... The other thing is, it's not just anyone playing the harp. Who's playing the harp? David. When David plays the harp, he tends to write music. We know him as the psalmist. We know that David has a heart of worship, so when he plays music, it's worship music. And we know that worship drives out the enemy. We know that raising up God and the praising of God is absolutely assaulting to the enemy. So he was not just playing music. He was worshiping in the presence of Saul. Do you think he's not praying, knowing what his job is? You need to calm the king down. You think David's not praying, hey, God, help me calm the king down. He's interceding for him, and he's worshiping right in his presence and causing the enemy to flee. Finally, how did this servant know about David? He knows an awful lot about him, right? It's almost creepy, like he's been stalking him or something, right? I know a man. You're like, what? How do you know that guy? Do you understand that if you would have interviewed David and said, hey, David, does anybody know about you? What are you doing? Is God using you? Nope, I'm just hanging out in the field. Nobody has any idea what I'm doing. You sure? These guys know. Everybody seems to know about you. How did that happen? He's just a kid out in the middle of a field, not important enough to bring to the ball. Yeah? So how is everybody figuring this out? Because God is your PR agent. God knows what needs to leak. And you know what? It is going to leak. I know you think you're in obscurity. We hear about you. Even I, a mere man in a church of this size, is still hearing about you. I hear stories leak out. I can't even connect them with your face. But I know what's going on in this church. I hear the stories. How much does God hear and allow other people to know? God will utilize that at all times, both positively and negatively. Let's close it out. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. And David became one 
of his armor bearers. Kind of an odd job description, right? That's, hey, play me some harp and kill people for me. That'd be great. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. That may have happened later. Whenever the spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play and the relief would come to Saul and he would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Let me close with these points. Number one, God is watching you and developing you and using you right where you are. Stop waiting for the big break and see your daily life as a calling from God. Number two, don't force it. If God wants you on what you call the big stage of life, right? Because all of us think and dream of our calling from God as being very big and everybody knows it and sees it and we're famous, right? If God wants you on the big stage of life, he'll get you there. Don't force it. If you force it, you will be ill-equipped to handle it. Why? Because God is preparing you to get there. If you jump the gun, you won't have the preparation necessary. But it's hard to wait, isn't it? Don't force it. Because the only thing more frustrating and hurtful than being in a holding pattern is being in the limelight and failing horribly. Number three. If you aren't faithful in the small things in the day-to-day, why in the world would God want to maximize that? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are clay in your hands and we ask that you would mold us and make us into useful men and women. That, Lord, the callings that you may need from us and require of us are not what we would design. We don't understand them. But as men and women of worship, we want them to be so. We submit our hearts to you afresh. We submit our lives to you afresh. And we ask that you be pleased in us and use us for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.